The Best of Our Knowledge explores topics on learning, education, and research. On today's episode, we'll learn about the world's most formidable creatures. National Geographic writer Jen Szymanski will speak with our Jody Cowan about her latest book on dangerous animals. And we'll learn about ice yachts, the fastest crafts on the planet at the turn of the 20th century. I'm Lucas Willard, host of The Best of Our Knowledge. You're listening to The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. The animal kingdom is in constant competition to either eat or be eaten. A new book for biology buffs of all ages explores some of Earth's most formidable creatures in the cycle of survival. The Best of Our Knowledge's Jody Cowan spoke with science writer Jen Szymanski about her book, The Deadliest Animals on the Planet. Working with Nat Geo Kids since 2016, Szymanski's latest is a collection of facts and photographs showcasing a wild world where wonder and danger meet. With National Geographic, a lot of it is team-driven, which actually works very well for me because, I mean, they're just amazing people and we get together to make the best product possible. So for this book, for example, they gave me some animals that they knew were high interest for kids right? The bears and the lions and such. And then they encouraged me to expand on that. And um, then I got to work with an amazing photo editor team that picked out the photos. And uh, now we have this book. Are you working with other educators to keep up on current curriculums as far as what's presented to kids and what they're looking for? So um, I do work for a, a textbook company and we are constantly working to make sure our textbook is meeting the science standards, next generation science standards. Um, so I get to do that as well, um, which is a, it's a very different thing, as you might imagine, from, from writing for National Geographic Kids. Um, I don't think it's any less important, though. Um, and I also have a really great team that I work with. Yeah. And this book, Deadliest Animals on the Planet, I really liked how like on one page you could find, you know, here's a great white shark. And then the next immediate page would be like a tiny tree frog and like the, the variation of these animals here. Uh, how did you go about quantifying the deadliness of the animals in this book? So um, one of the great things that we did with this book, as you sort of alluded to, we have expanded what deadliest means. So it can be deadly in the sense of how successful are they at catching prey? How, um, what adaptations do they have? You know, how, you know, long are their teeth? How sharp are their claws? Uh, in the case of the blue whale, whale, how many krill does it swallow in one swallow? So that was really, really neat for me. Uh, and I, I hope kids can, you know, think about what that means and what deadly means a little differently after they read the book. I was happy to see my personal favorites from my childhood, like the Gila monster and the puffer fish that were all present there. But there was also like a lot of surprises to me, you know, penguins that made it in there. The, the giant African land snail was, was another one. And then like a household cat and cows that also made the deadliest list here. I, and that, that was also something I thought was, would be important for kids is that you think about domesticated animals and we don't consider them to be deadly, but they really, I mean, house cats are great at what they do. They really are. I mean, as, as far as like a kill rate, um, they are successful hunters at about 30% of the time. Um, and, you know, a tiger might be one in 10. 
So they're actually better at it than something that we would consider to be more traditionally fierce. Yeah, I love that. And and their inclusion in that, you know, and maybe think about all of the the gifts that the cats have presented over the years of their of their catches and trophies. <laughs> right. uh, do yeah. you keep a, a mental Rolodex of all of these animals at this point? Uh, no, I, I could never do that. Um, you know, one of the greatest things uh, about working for Nat Geo is that I learn something every single time. So even if I'm doing research on the same animal, if we're doing it from a different approach, I learn something different about how they survive in the wild or what they eat or, you know, what is their conservation status. So it's a continual learning process for me, which is amazing. Do you have a favorite fact that you've learned or a favorite thing that you like to present in the book? I never thought of, you know, smaller birds as being particularly violent, <laughs> um, but the the shrike, the northern shrike, they're always on the hunt. And if they catch something and they're not hungry, they will impale that kill on a branch or a thorn or something and, and save it for later. And I, I kind of feel that's pretty worthy of a horror movie. And so... <laughs> For this small, kind of handsome-looking bird, that wasn't something that I expected. Yeah, nature's pretty hardcore out there. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah. there's quite a few deadly predators that are featured in the book, but there's also, you highlight a lot of prey power, as you refer to in the book. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, to me, nature is just a game of predator versus prey. So the predators are going to be consistently um, evolving along the way, trying to, you know, get um, more prey where you have prey are going to be resistant to that. Um, toxic tree frogs, for example, is a, a favorite of mine. There can be, you know, a, a frog that's the size of your thumb, but it's bright red to sort of advertise to predators that, you know, if you come after me, I am absolutely going to make you sick and maybe even kill you. That we consider that deadly? Absolutely. Yeah, and I learned in this book the difference between a poisonous and a venomous animal. And it was like a distinction that I hadn't really thought about or really processed that way. You also cleared up a pretty pervasive myth about the deadliness of long legs, uh, daddy long leg spiders. Right. That actually, so these those extra spreads that we have in this book, the one that's, you know, deadly myths that are busted. That was, to me, was also fascinating. I had also grown up learning about, you know, daddy long legs, and I was very surprised to find out that Really, they're not. They're not more. They're, they're not more toxic than any any other spider. And thinking so. about you know adults reading this and maybe reading it with their kids and the, kind of the education here, is there an age limit to learning? Oh, absolutely not. Like I said, I I learned so much by researching all of these books, um, and I just think I know these are. It's technically National Geographic Kids. But I've given them to family and I've asked them, you know, oh, did you give them to, you know, my niece or nephew? And they're like, oh, no, <laughs> because like I thought it was really cool and I wanted to go through it again. So there's so much to learn about the natural world. It's it's amazing. Yeah. And obviously it's, it's curated for kids. But I was curious if you had a particular group of readers in mind when when crafting your books. For this particular book, the age range is probably about seven to twelve um, as far as reading level, but I don't know. When I was a kid, I, I was a big fan of National Geographic used to have a magazine called World, uh, and I know they don't do that anymore, but I used to just go through and look at the pictures because I think the pictures, again, in this are just stunning. And this is a bit of a, a follow-up of sorts to maybe your last book or a previous book that was the cutest animals on the planet, right? Mm -hmm. If we did a, let's say, a, a brand name soda challenge here between the, the this book and the deadliest animals on the planet in a room full of readers, which gets the people's choice? 
that's tough. Um, I don't know. I, I think it just, I think it's, it's so much depends on the kid's personality. A- again, one of the things that we did for cutest animal is we expanded that definition of cute. So there's a lot of animals in there that you might look at and go, you know, not cuddly, right? Not furry, but nevertheless, they do some really cute behaviors. Um, I think, you know, the internet's very good at, at showing us the spiders that wear the raindrops as hats and, and, and things like that. So that was a lot of fun to do. Um, boy, I don't know. I don't know if I could pick. <laughs> I really don't. Just in the conversation of the way that animals are presented, and I'm thinking about, you know, the news this week that I saw of parachute spiders, maybe, right, invading the city and kind of almost this like fear campaign about what could be really kind of a fascinating opportunity to learn about a new species. When you're thinking about presenting deadliest versus the cutest and making something deadly, inviting a little bit here, is there is there a conversation there that you're having when making this book? Definitely. I, I think that that's something that consistently runs through a lot of um, not only National Geographic Kids, but a few of the other children's media that I've, I've worked with. And that is that, you know, everything's scary or may look weird to us until we start to understand it, right? Um, so kids come to think, for example, they think that octopuses are evil because they tend to be comic book villains and sea witches and, and you know, things like that. But then you, you teach them, you know, what look, these arms are actually amazing, right? They're, they're amazing. And, and they really help that animal to survive. And here's how they use them. Then you sort of, you know, release some of that mystifying factor and kids get more excited about that and less reluctant. Where do we as human beings fall on this deadliness scale compared to some of the, the animals presented on this book? We're absolutely number one. Um, I was thinking about this prior to interviews today that when I was a kid, um, I'm outside of Pittsburgh and I used to go to Pittsburgh Zoo. And the last thing that you saw before you left the zoo was if take a look at the, you know, the world's deadliest animal. And there was a mirror inside. And even as a kid, and I, I'm not particularly young, but even as a kid that really impressed on me that um, humans by far um, are just with the you know, taking of the habitat, um, climate change, things like this. I mean, we are, we are causing a lot of, or we have historically caused a lot of damage. I, I'm heartened because I see uh, increasing awareness about that. So I'm hoping that we can reverse some of that. Are there animals that have evolved or adapted their deadliness specifically to deal with us and our like human beings on the planet? Well, absolutely. Like, for example, if we had to choose technically to humans, the world's deadliest animal, I would make an argument for the mosquito um, just because of its, you know, ability to spread malaria, even though that's, you know, treatable today. Um, So one of the things that has happened because of climate change is that mosquitoes will breed in the shallowest of water as long as the temperature is right and that there's enough um, water for them to lay their eggs and for their, um, their larvae to mature. Well, because of climate change, those puddles are around longer and they're warmer. And so we're actually inadvertently increasing the number of mosquitoes. So they're more successful now because of us. That's a terrifying realization. And I hope you come (laughs) around. But yeah, I appreciate the deadliness there. And I appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with us today. Finally here, what do you hope readers take away from sitting down and reading your book? I would say definitely be respectful of nature, no matter whether we're talking about a house cat or a grizzly bear. You know, these are animals that are doing what they need to do to survive, to reproduce, 
to, you know, just live their lives. And I, I think that sometimes in an internet driven culture, we tend to lose that respect just because they're cute or, you know, we see some one person on a, a you know, a short video petting a bear. We think we can all do that. And, and no, love nature, but absolutely respect it. That's science writer Jen Samansky speaking with the best of our knowledges, Jody Cowan, about her new book for National Geographic Kids called The Deadliest Animals on the Planet, published by Disney Books. You're listening to The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. At the turn of the 20th century, the fastest crafts on the planet did not travel by land, sea, or air, but by ice. A frozen Hudson River was once a popular arena for racing ice yachts. The wind-powered crafts are outfitted with skis to carry people over frozen bodies of water. Originally designed to carry people in cargo centuries ago, by the mid-19th century, sportsmen competed at top speeds on the Hudson. Family members of President Franklin D. Roosevelt were prominent ice yachters, and a recent exhibit at the FDR Presidential Library and Museum showcased the sport. To learn more, I met up with Bob Wills of the Hudson River Ice Yacht Club at the museum, where the sails of three ice yachts stretched to the exhibit hall ceiling. Well, you're looking at three ice boats from the late 1800s that were uh, built right here in Hyde Park. And uh, these boats were, at the time, the fastest vehicles on Earth. How fast could they go? These, this class of boats, which is the smaller end of the scale of, of these racing boats, went about 40 or 50 miles an hour, up to the fast boats that beat the railroad trains regularly. I think the Speed record in the 1800s was 100, over 100 miles an hour. So ice yachts were primarily used in the 19th century? Well, yes. The sport, what became the sport, started with the Dutch putting ice skates on the bottom of their hulled ships so that they could continue commerce in the winter, delivering goods across the river. From there, people realized how fast these boats went, so the designs changed specifically for speed. So what you see here are these skeletons that look like crossbows with uh, gaff-rigged sails, and these boats regularly raced out of Poughkeepsie. Poughkeepsie was the center of ice yachting in the world, along with rowing, as we're hearing from the boys in the, in the boat book. But, um, so hun hundreds of people were on the ice at a time, and they were all uh, betting, and uh, these races happened pretty much from the 1850s to the 1920s. At that time, was there more frequent or thicker ice coverage on the Hudson that would make this a little more practical? Right now we're speaking in January and there's no ice on the Hudson. That's correct, yes. Uh, things have changed pretty dramatically. We have 
records of uh, races, the club, club records that go back to, from 1850 to about 1930. And there, there were only a handful of years where there was no sailing, no racing particularly. There could have been sailing, but um, if there wasn't racing, there was likely not ice. And almost every year had ice. So we've been shut out a number of years recently. It's, it's, uh, we certainly experience the changes in climate that are happening with warming temperatures. So tell me about this. Uh, craft in particular. What can you tell me about this one? There's, as you mentioned, the crossbow-shaped, almost wood structure underneath a large canvas uh, set of sails. Yes, okay. So this boat is, uh, name is 999, after the famous New York Central locomotive. And it was built by the Bodenstein Ice Tool Company family in 1893 as a pleasure craft. This wasn't the fastest boat out there. It was more a, a slightly older design than some of the other boats we'll talk about that are here. Uh, it was a little heavier, um, a little less stable, and um, had a smaller cockpit or area for a skipper and passengers. So we can see they sat on uh, velvet cushions. I was going to say, it looks almost rather comfortable for something that's <laughs> going to be sailing around in the wintertime. Yes, it, it, it is, and, and com comfort is, is relative. Um, in order to sail these boats on the Hudson, we need ice that's uh, relatively smooth, like almost perfectly smooth. No snow and wind, so uh, to get all those conditions at one time, it makes for a challenging and frustrating uh, uh, sport. <laughs> so. And probably a pretty cold day, too. Oh yes, you have to dress for the occasion and uh, and make sure you're uh, ready ready for it. Yeah. So tell me about this craft over here. Yeah. So so the uh, Roosevelt family were world champion ice yachters. Franklin's uncle John Roosevelt was a world champion through the late 1800s, and I think the beginning of the 1900s. His rival was Archibald Rogers. Archie Rogers lived on the estate just to the north of the FDR estate here. They were best friends and rivals for ice boating. So this boat was Archie Rogers' son's boat, Herman Livingston Rogers. It was built in uh, 1901 by uh, a person that worked on the estate. So you could see it's a little bit different design a little more refined, um, it, a little more decorative elements on it, like the handrails and, and the, uh, the tiller. And um, it was a boat that we have in the records and was regularly raced uh, by the Rogers family. But again, the boats that we're seeing here are all about 200 square feet of sail, which meant they were the fifth class of boats versus the first class of boats, the largest boats. These boats are about 25 feet long and uh, about 13, 14 feet wide. And again, with 200 square feet of sail, the largest class of boats are 50 feet long and have 750 square feet of sail. So would the smaller ones then primarily be used for racing or pleasure sailing, and then the larger ones, could they actually carry cargo or people? No, actually not. They were. Uh, also designed specifically for racing. And, and at the time, in the 
1860s, 1870s, the thought was that the larger the sail, the faster you can go. But what was proven was that they become unstable at anything over about 700 square feet of, of sail. John Roosevelt, FDR's uncle, had a boat that had 1,000 square feet of sail. He sailed it once, and it was completely unstable, and he had it remade in a smaller size, and it became a champion boat. I can tell looking at this is the Cyclone versus the 999 over to my left, this one has uh, a thinner structure. Is this one actually lighter and therefore faster on the ice? Yes, exactly. That, that's right. The, the 999 was a little earlier design. It's called a side railer. What it has is two huge timbers that support the cockpit in the back, and those are very heavy. But subsequently, woven wire uh, uh, was developed. That didn't exist in the past. So they went from that heavier design to use what we now see as cable, right? Steel like cables steel that cables. attach the... Yes, uh, that triangulate and stabilize that crossbow shape. This makes the boats much lighter and, and much faster. Now let's look at the third craft over here. What can you tell me about this one? Well, Crisk is a very special boat. John Roosevelt commissioned this in 1898. It was built right in Poughkeepsie by the preeminent ice yacht builder in the, in the world. Uh, George Buckout was his name. Jacob Buckout was his father. And they prided themselves not only in fast boats, but in beautiful decorations. So, so what you see here is a refinement, again, of the aesthetics of the boat. You have a brass uh, tiller. You have uh, 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 velour uh, cushions. You have uh, decorative woods that are used in the cockpit of the boat. So th this was a special boat, and again, a smaller size boat that was predominantly used for pleasure, which is what's represented by the larger cockpit there. We are sure that John Roosevelt's daughter, Ellen Roosevelt, sailed this boat. She was a crack ice sailor, along with being the uh, 1902 women's tennis champion, U.S. tennis champion. She was a crack sailor, won all the races the men were afraid of sailing with her, which is a funny story. But Franklin at the time was a, was a very young man, and we're sure he sailed this boat with uh, Ellen and John Roosevelt. So what can you tell me about this sport and why does it interest you? Why are you so involved in it today, more than 100 years after the height of the sport? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. And, and um, I think many of us ice boaters ask ourselves that, why are we doing this? Because this, the design of the boats has evolved tremendously from, from the 1800s, where now you have carbon fiber and you have enclosed cockpits and you have boats that go 140 miles an hour. But I think, I think we all share something that Franklin Roosevelt had. He loved these boats at the time and when they were no longer the fastest vehicles on earth after the invention of cars and airplanes and they fell out of favor with the rich and the young and everyone on the Hudson River, he collected them. So he had a I believe about 60 ice boats right, right across the street from where we're standing now. And um, he did not want to see them lost. And, and that's the same thing that drives us today. So, so Chris, I caretake Chris for 
the Brower family. Arnold Brower, the, the father, was a young man, was a child really, on the Roosevelt estate. His, his father was a carpenter on the estate. And one day FDR came up to he and his two friends he had with him and said, how would you each like an ice boat? So Arnold got Chris, the boat we're standing in front of here. And he was absolutely fascinated with it the, the entire time he had it and uh, went on to the Air Force, uh, uh, a, a stellar, significant career in the Air Force. So sailing probably influenced him. So we are at the point of now, similarly, of um, wanting to preserve these boats. We're all getting older these days, so we need to preserve them somehow, which is why last October we, we formed a not-for-profit. We were chartered by New York State Museum and Education Department specifically to preserve these boats because eventually we want to establish a museum for these things because we're getting older, we can't maybe It'd be more difficult for us to sail should we have ice, but we've had much less ice. So that combination means that we got to do something with them. We don't want to see the boats turn into furniture. Now, if it comes down to it, do you travel with the boats to go race <laughs> maybe a little further north where it might be a little colder? Yes, yes. At times we do. Uh, a number of our club members are on Orange Lake by Stewart Airport. That's been a hotbed of ice boating for, for a century. And um, further south, we don't usually go further south, but uh, Red Bank, New Jersey has a strong contingent of ice boaters. And we do travel north. In 2021 and 2022, we were at Athens, New York, on the west side of the Hudson. There's a protected area of the Hudson there that forms has formed ice those two years, so we've had a little bit of sailing there. And we've gone up to Lake Winnipesaukee or uh, up to uh, Lake Champlain at times. But traveling like that is, is uh, you know, something you really have to prepare for. And it's, it's not as easy as rolling out of bed like I do and, and uh, sail right here on the Hudson River. So for people who are coming into this exhibit and like me have never seen one of these structures before, what are you hoping they come away with? Well, uh, the first lesson is that these were wind-powered craft that were the fastest vehicles on Earth. So that's number one thing. We're hoping that engenders some interest in young people so they can, they can come here and enjoy the sport. Um, I think the, the beauty of the boats is something that everyone should consider, and uh, certainly people have been... Uh, admiring the, uh, the boats as soon as they see them. Um, and it's, it's just um, this piece of history that's still relevant today that we want to see continue. Uh, other, other clubs, like in the Midwest, they, have, they use these boats, but they refine them with modern materials and modern sails, and they don't look like they did originally. So our club, the Hudson River Ice Yacht Club, and the Preservation Trust, we pride ourselves in keeping the boats exactly like they were when they were built. And if someone wants to go faster than these boats are capable of going, buy a new boat. <laughs> <laughs> That's Bob Wills of the Hudson River Ice Yacht Club speaking with me at the FDR Presidential Library and Museum in Hyde Park, New York. 
For more information on the Hudson River Ice Yacht Preservation Trust, visit hriypt.org. You're listening to the best of our knowledge. This has been the best of our knowledge, episode 1738. The best of our knowledge is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Thanks to associate producer Jody Cowan, the latest on all national productions programs is available via the Airwaves newsletter and our flagship station's website, wamc.org. Until next time, I'm Lucas Willard.